Welcome to Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia is facing its most significant challenges since World War II. Geopolitical tensions are increasing. Cultural self-confidence is in decline. The values which define us, freedom, democracy, egalitarianism and sacrifice are being put to the test. Over this special podcast series, Tony and I discuss how Australia can survive and flourish in the decades ahead. Hello Tony and hello to all of our listeners. It's wonderful to be with you for another episode of Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. I'm looking forward to today's discussion and there is, as always, much to discuss. We're going to get to something very interesting today and I'm looking forward to it because Tony is going to be giving us a special insight, behind the scenes look at the nature of leaders' debates, uh, what they mean, Tony's experience uh, and the implications they can have on elections and the broader nature of debate as we head into the federal election um, later this month. Uh, But to begin with, I'd like to start by discussing um, a big issue that Tony and I have discussed a number of times on this series, which is the policy of net zero emissions by 2050. As our listeners would know, we've discussed the economic and social implications of uh, net zero. But there was also an interesting survey uh, that was published today in The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald uh, about Australians' willingness to pay for Australia to cut its emissions. And it's really revealing what the survey found. The survey asked Australians, how much would you personally be willing to pay uh, for Australia to cut its emissions? 39% said they would not pay anything at all. 41% said they would pay, but only a small personal cost. And just 9% said they would pay a significant personal cost. Now, this survey follows a survey that we did at the Institute of Public Affairs um, last month where we asked a similar question. We asked, uh, how much would you personally be willing to pay each year for Australia to meet its net zero by 2050 target? And the results were very revealing and support the results that came out today. 42% said they wouldn't pay anything, not one single cent for Australia to meet 2050 net zero target. 30% said they'd only pay 50 bucks a year. 20% said they'd only pay 100 bucks a year. 5% said they'd pay 500. And just 3% said they would pay more than $500 a year for Australia to meet its net zero emissions by 2050 target. Tony, what does this tell us about the state of the community and the support for net zero that's out there? It tells us, Dan, that where climate change is an economic issue, uh, the coalition is strong, It's only where climate change is a moral issue that the coalition is weak, which is actually something that I observed back uh, on the uh, uh, night of the 2019 election. One of the things that I found, Dan, was that uh, when it came to enthusiasm for environmental programs, uh, the program that uh, people were most readily excited about uh, was... um, the Green Corps back in the days of the Howard government and the Green Army in the days of my own government because that was about trying to make a practical difference. It was about getting rid of invasive weeds, getting rid of feral animals. It was about track work in national parks. It was about tree propagation, endangered species and so on. It was about better water quality, about better land management. And this was something that people could see, touch, uh, feel, um, 
it was about building a better world today and tomorrow, uh, not just fretting about existential issues decades down the track. Uh, but I think that's an indication of, of where middle Australia is uh, when it comes to environmental issues. We want to protect the planet. Uh, we're not so enthusiastic about reducing emissions, particularly if it's going to come at massive economic cost. And the absolute iron law of emissions reduction so far is that it makes uh, power prices much higher, uh, power reliability much less, and I don't think there's really anyone that thinks that uh, less affordable and less reliable power is a good thing, and that's been the practical consequence of all of the policies to produce uh, lower emissions thus far. Look, look into the future. What I would say, and um, I'll put I'll put this out there for you, and and you can make of it what you will. So we we did some analysis on what net zero means, and what we concluded is, look, the Greens are actually right. The Greens are actually the only party being honest with the Australian people because they say, look, net zero is a big deal. If you're going to do this legitimately, you can't have new coal, you can't have new gas, you can't have new oil projects, and they're right. Unless you're prepared to have nuclear. Well, unless you're prepared to do that, which we're not. So under current policy settings, mm. they're right because you can't cut emissions by adding emissions. Mm. So we estimated that's going to cost about $274 billion across our economy. So don't – isn't it and, – And there are massive swathes of the economy uh, to which emissions are intrinsic. Mm. Agriculture, for instance. Uh, uh, I mean, you can't run large cattle and, and, and sheep herds without substantial emissions uh, – Transport, you can't run heavy trucks without substantial emissions. Uh, um, so it's not just the power sector that's a problem. Uh, it's, uh, it's things as basic as agriculture and transport. Then, of course, there's heavy industry. Now, you cannot run a steelworks on intermittent power. You cannot run an aluminium smelter on intermittent power. But no one's proposing that we stop using steel. No one's proposing that we stop using aluminium. All that happens is that uh, we don't produce these things in Australia. Uh, we import uh, the products from overseas. The emissions migrate overseas. So do the jobs. To places, and the jobs to places that are much less fastidious about these things than we are. So, look, um, emissions policy uh, as practised or as enunciated across the board, but particularly by the Greens, is, is really an act of economic self-harm for almost zero environmental benefit because with about 1% of global emissions emanating from Australia, nothing we do is, is going to make a significant difference. And the really big emitters, particularly China and India, for obvious and understandable reasons, do not want to limit the ability of their people to improve their living standards uh, by um, damaging the cost structures of their power generation. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned China and we had some research on that at point. You say we account for about 1% of global emissions and another figure we calculated was every 16 days, China emits more than Australia does in one entire year. Mm. So if this is a global problem, as we're told, mm. but other nations that are the big emitters aren't acting, then, as you say, there's no discernible benefit for us mm. as and, a nation. And, and, and look, this whole thing is, is farcical at many levels. So take the Labor Party's claim 
that the problems that we've got with the Solomon Islands right now are because of our policy on climate change. Well, if it was climate change that was driving the Solomon Islands, uh, they would hardly be concluding uh, a special arrangement, a special strategic arrangement (laughs) with the country which is by far the world's biggest emitter. It's a good insight. Why hasn't that insight been made by others? Well, I suspect it has, but I'm not sure that it's penetrated the noise of the election campaign. Right. I want to pick up on a couple of threads of this discussion, and it goes to something you and I have talked about before, which is the role of um, other civic organisations and business groups in particular. And I found it very interesting, although perhaps not entirely surprising, that the Business Council of Australia has essentially backed in Labor's climate policy. And this is a, a broader trend that we've seen over recent years of many of the major institutions and the big business groups that are essentially now of the left, whether it's to do with our cultural issues and the, and the woke um, sort of values that come out of, of big business and now on the economy and climate. Can you, you know, based on all of your experience as leader of the opposition, as prime minister, as prosecuting uh, the case in public on some of these very big issues, what was your experience in your and your government's relationship with these big uh, industry, big business groups and how you know, how they influence debate? In in my time as opposition leader, the BCA was pretty solid because back then Tony Shepherd was the was the, the president, the, the head, and Tony Shepherd has had a lot of experience in both the public and the private sector, a very solid citizen who understood that in the end uh, an important part of the task of government is to try to ensure that the economy runs more effectively, that government is lean and efficient, mm. that regulation is as, li- is as light as possible, that tax is as low as possible, that the rules have got to be stable and as, as, as lacking in burdens as possible. Mm. So he well understood this and uh, Jennifer Westacott was an able chief executive uh, to, uh, to Tony Shepard's uh, chairmanship or presidency. Uh, things have changed since then very dramatically and I assume that this is largely driven by the fact that the BCA is very much uh, the representative body for large public companies. Uh, large public companies have been prone to shareholder activism. Uh, they've been driven by uh, the industry super funds which of course uh, uh, tend to be uh, the commercial arm of the, of, of the union movement. So, so you can't rely on uh, public companies and the BCA uh, to give you uh, a serious, hard-headed, commonsensical approach to the economy today. Mm. No, I think that's right, and we've just been doing. A- I mean, look, 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 Dan. Yep. Look at the campaigns that uh, public companies have have championed. Uh, they championed uh, not just net zero, but they've championed. Um, uh, same-sex marriage, it's a cause that people can agree with or disagree with, but it's hardly at the heart uh, of, uh, of our economy mm. uh, and of uh, maximising shareholder value. Mm. Um, many of them have championed a, a constitutionally entrenched voice. I believe that campaign is about to crank up again. Um, almost inconceivable a generation ago that public companies uh, would... Um, on mass, get involved in these sorts of things. 
Do you reckon we can do anything about it or is it just something that we kind of have to deal with because what we're getting into here is just the big massive flows of money and international capital that's that's driving a lot of this and I think a lot of the reason I ask this is just we've been in North Queensland last week talking about net zero mm. and communities from Cairns down to Gladstone and you get the feeling that a lot of people feel pretty disempowered and pretty let down whether it's their local politicians what what do you reckon the average person can do about this Dan again uh, the only way to respond to all of this is to become more active. Uh, I know how busy people are. I know how hard it is uh, for lots of families to make ends meet. Uh, and the last thing people want to do is go to meetings, uh, ring up talk back radio, get active on social media, uh, join the political party of their choice and try to make it better. But as I've often said, a majority that stays silent does not long remain a majority. Uh, people who are not prepared to speak their mind have got to accept uh, that that uh, noisy alternatives will prevail. And if um, private business is to flourish, if strong communities uh, are to prosper and if our country uh, is to remain uh, strong and cohesive, the people who are in favour of business and who are in favour of uh, our neighbourhoods uh, and their qualities and characteristics and who want our country uh, to be proud, um, we've got to speak up more. I think that's right. And, and it's uh, just to build on your point, it's not just that a, a majority that's silent won't be a majority. It's that they start to believe that they're the minority. If, you, if you're not seeing your views or values mm. reflected back to you, you start to believe that few other people think as you do. And and it's never really upset me that much <laughs> to stand up in whatever context it might be and advocate a view that I believe in and that I think there are persuasive arguments for, but uh, I'm probably a bit unusual in being like that, Dan. But more often than not, you were. it was revealed that a if not a majority, a significant minority were with you. Look, uh, on, on climate change, uh, there is no doubt uh, that, that where the coalition has been prepared to fight uh, for a sensible position that wants to reduce emissions but without massive costs, without driving industries offshore, without sacrificing tens of thousands of jobs, uh, we win and we win well. Look at the 2010 election uh, where we fought um, a government with a big majority uh, to minority status, the 2013 election where we had a thumping win, the 2019 election where we campaigned strongly against Labor's uh, jobs-destroying, indeed economy-wrecking emissions position. Yeah, indeed. No, that's a very good way of putting it and I think it's a good uh, position for us to go on to our next topic, which is uh, the nature of debate in, in our democracy and one particular facet of that, which is the leaders' debates. Uh, there was the first debate between Morrison and Albanese a couple of weeks ago, and there's two more debates that are slated, one on Channel 7, one on Channel 9 over the coming week and week and a half. You've had a lot of experience in public debate uh, in various forms, and uh, you were very successful in your leaders' debates that you had in your time as opposition leader um, and your time in politics. What I'm interested in to begin with and what our, I think our audience would appreciate is firstly a little bit of, uh, I guess, behind-the-scenes insights into how did you personally prepare? Did you 
did you sort of have a pretend opponent that would pretend to be uh, who, who you were facing? How did you psychologically prepare? What did you do? Did you go for a run? Did you do some exercise? How did you get fired up for it? The best way to succeed in debates is to create low expectations beforehand, Dan. <laughs> and I was always pretty good at creating low, creating low <laughs> expectations. Uh, look, the debates are very important because the public want to look at their leaders and potential leaders and feel that they've got a good sense of their strengths and um, that they can cope with any weaknesses and I, I guess they want to feel that they've got a handle on their leaders and would-be leaders and they like to think that whoever they vote for is someone who on balance they think is a reasonable human being who's going to do a reasonable job. So these debates certainly are important. I used to uh, try to ensure that as far as was humanly possible, I didn't get too hung up about these debates knowing that John Howard was regarded as the loser of almost every leader's debate he ever went into and yet had an outstanding record at winning elections. Mm. So I tried not to get too hung up about them. I tried uh, not to do much more than simply maintain the broad positions that I had through the elections. The interesting thing about about debates is that where you've got members of the public, you often get left field questions because the preoccupations of the public are not the same as the preoccupations of the Canberra bubble. And, and this is why I think those uh, town hall style debates that Sky has been running have actually been better um, in showing a different side of our leaders than the ones that uh, the media dominate via the press club or the, the more traditional journalist format. <coughs> I, I certainly tried not to over-prepare. I mean, every day is a debate mm. uh, between yourself and the public that you interact with, uh, the media that you interact with, and election campaigns are basically one rolling, often combative, sometimes genial, uh, but they're a rolling conversation between you and the Australian people in all their various guises. So you're pretty well prepared uh, by by everything you've done up till that point for the debate itself. The important thing is not to get too nervous. Uh, and for me, that meant uh, being as well-versed as I could be uh, in the likely questions, getting um, Andrew Hurst and Peter Credlin and Andrew Stone and others on my team to throw me what they think were the most difficult questions and to tell me how they thought my responses uh, um, measured up. Um, but, but yeah, um, trying to make sure that you're as in, a, in as good a frame as mind as you could be before the thing and that often meant going for a run or a trip to the gym. Do you have a most memorable debate moment, good, bad, indifferent, uh, that probably, you can share? Probably the most... A significant thing to come out of any of my debates was the Brisbane Sky News Town Hall Forum versus Kevin Rudd in 2013. And it wasn't what actually happened there in the forum. It was what happened beforehand. Uh, the same person did the makeup for both of us. And afterwards, 
she was quite nice about me, but not very nice about Kevin, who presumably had been a bit distracted and indifferent when he went in to uh, the makeup room. I was apparently uh, quite relaxed and, and chatty. Uh, when I was a journalist a long, long time ago, they said, never be rude to the copy boy mm. because the copy boy or copy person might be your editor one day. And I guess the same applies to the people who you come across in retail, the people you come across in public transport and the people you come across in makeup rooms. <laughs> no, I can certainly imagine uh, I certainly imagine that situation uh, with Kevin in the makeup room. When um, just to finish off this thread of conversation, so when we're looking at the next couple of debates, do you reckon that they are going to have any real impact on the final outcome of the election? I mean, my instinct is, look, they can have an impact if one of the Morrison or Albanese really stuffs something up, if they really have a, uh, you know, a gaffe or they um, get something seriously wrong, maybe Albanese forgets a stat again or something like that. But my instinct is, look, most people probably have made up their mind and you sort of have to, you have to disabuse them of their notion that they have. What do, you, what do you reckon? Look, I've never gone into an election at any time in my life undecided about my vote. Uh, I've made up my mind um, a long time before the election and I guess being a political animal, I, I find it hard to understand why people haven't made up their mind. I can understand people changing their mind, absolutely, uh, but, I, but I, I find it difficult to grasp people not having made up their mind. Yet we're told that up to 10% of people make up their mind as they're walking into the polling booth, which is one of the reasons why these debates do, do matter. Um, I think that undecided voters make up their mind very much on the basis of the vibe and and that's partly what do they think or, or which party or leader is is going to do best for them are my health bills going to be a little bit lower under one side than the other are my wages going to be a little bit higher under one side than the other uh, is my mortgage repayment going to be a little bit more manageable under one side or the other and 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 then a sense of which leader comes across as more authentic uh, or more fair income uh, to use the Australian vernacular so so these debates certainly do matter is the leader on top of the policy and is the leader a decent human being it didn't happen in a debate but I think one of the most significant moments in the 2004 election was Mark Latham's so-called assault handshake against John Howard because he was a much larger, younger bloke seeming to be aggressive against an older, smaller person. And I think that turned mm. a lot of people off. Uh, Latham, as you might remember, looked like a winner going into the 2004 election, but in the end it was uh, the strongest result for the coalition uh, since 1996. didn't mean that the coalition uh, was invincible, as we discovered uh, just three years later. 
But look, you know, uh, speaking as someone who led the coalition through two election campaigns f- for for the participants as much as for the observers, election campaigns tend to be a fog. So much happens. It's hard to remember anything in particular, and yet every so often something stands out like that handshake uh, between Howard and Latham, um, like for me, uh, that um, exchange with the makeup person prior mm. to the 2013 debate. Mm. No, Tony, thank you for that really interesting insight into behind the scenes of the leaders' debates, mm. and thank you for your uh, insights and, and analysis of, of net zero and the business community and the challenges we face as a nation. So I'm looking forward to picking up some of these discussions over the coming weeks. But uh, for today, we'll have to leave it there. So Tony, um, as always, thank you for your insights and your time. And I'm looking forward to our future discussions. Thanks, Dan. Me too. This is a production of the Centre for the Australian Way of Life at the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more, visit australia.ipa.org.au.